0: When I was in ninth grade algebra, we, we took a test that was based off a particular formula. The formula was something like the square root of x over y equals z, maybe. Something like that. And as long as you knew that formula, all you had to do was take the numbers you were given in each question and put them into the formula and you would come to the correct solution, simple enough. But somehow I got the formula backward. And as a result, I got every, I did every equation wrong without realizing it. And so much to my surprise, the test grades come back. I feel pretty good about it. And the test grades come back and y'all, I got a four <laughs> out of a hundred, a four. And I remember thinking it'd be better if I'd have gotten a zero because at least I could have claimed that I didn't try, you know, a four implies some manner of effort. And and, and four also tells you that I got one question right. I don't dumb luck, I guess. I don't even know how I got the one right because I had the formula wrong. Now, thankfully, I had a very gracious teacher who understood the issue. She let me take the test over, and with the right formula, I did just fine. But when I think about that story, you know, my problem that day and on that test, it was not a lack of information. I had all the information I needed. The problem was that I had the formula twisted. I had it backward, and therefore, nothing else I did could compute. I couldn't come to the right answer because I had the right, the wrong basis. I I couldn't see and understand and comprehend what everybody else could clearly see. And so even though the answers were right there in front of me, I just couldn't apprehend the truth because it was like I was upside down when everybody else was right side up. Now I want to take that idea and, and, and I hope bring us to what I think is a very vital spiritual application today as Jesus speaks to us in Matthew chapter 11. Y'all, we're taking this summer beginning with last week, Evan taught us from Mark chapter 1, Jesus' call to follow Him. We're talking about discipleship this summer, different facets of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so today, we're going to talk about something, a topic, that would seem to be absolutely simple and common sense that a disciple is someone who comes to Christ. Last week, Jesus says, follow me. Today, we're going to see Him say, come to me. Jesus calls us to come to Him and to learn from Him. But what Jesus is actually talking about here is a certain kind of formula, if you will. There's a certain way we come to Him that's much deeper and more complex and more wonderful than what we might imagine. As simple as it seems, as straightforward as it ought to be, A lot of times we make it difficult. And so Jesus tries to simplify this for us today. And my hope is that his word will be very clarifying. Y'all, here in Matthew 11, now I'm going to encourage you, we're only going to read a little section toward the end. But if you read the entire chapter of Matthew 11, you actually encounter some very harsh words from Jesus. What precedes our section today is a proclamation of judgment against his fellow Jews who have rejected Him, and what we discover is that a great many people have rejected not only Jesus' teachings, but also His personal divine claims. They've even rejected His miracles. Even as they've benefited from His miracles, they've turned and rejected what His miracles mean and the implications of these things. This is why uh, in John chapter 1, there's this very stunning and disheartening statement. John tells us that Jesus came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. And Matthew 11 is a testimony of this. And so Jesus speaks in very harsh terms to those who have seen him and yet have rejected him full face. But now, at the end of the chapter, Jesus turns to the Father and says a prayer. And the tone changes very dramatically here. Even in the face of all this rejection, Jesus prays, and it goes like this. Look at verse 25 with me of Matthew 11. At that time, Jesus said... I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Right here, we've got almost in the very same breath, as Jesus denounces the people who have rejected Him, He turns and praises His Father for His presiding divine plan in this case. You see what He says? I praise You, Father, that You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. These things, Jesus says, which I think refers to the truth of His own divine identity, the significance of His miracles and all that they point to, these things, Jesus says, are being concealed from the wise and revealed to the simple. In other words, the proud and the self-righteous are blind to the divine grace of Jesus. While those who are humble and poor in spirit they are having their eyes opened to him. Now if that seems strange to us I want to encourage us here this is a this is a pretty consistent teaching throughout the scripture both old and new testament but especially in the new testament there's one place in particular I want to point out to us because it really fleshes this idea out I think very clearly and wonderfully this is Paul's words to the church in Corinth. In, In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is speaking now to Corinth. This was a city of people obsessed with success and achievement and status. This was Paul's battle with them always. They wanted Paul's credentials. They wanted to know that Paul was worth listening to. Because so many of the teachers and philosophers of the day had diplomas, they had credentials, they had a reason to be seen as great, and that's what the people of Corinth thought was so special. And Paul combats against this. He shows them, actually, the gospel of Jesus undercuts all of those prideful assumptions. And here he says that this is 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Listen to this. Paul says to the church, Consider your calling, brethren. Think about your own salvation." that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A big part of what Paul is saying here for us. There is no human status that commends us to God. There's nothing great or special about us that we earn our way into God's good favor or, or grant, you know, kind of grant ourselves a seat at the table. No. God is in no way impressed or swayed by human wisdom, human strength, or human wealth. In fact, Paul says, Jesus says, it's the opposite. The Lord actively works against our natural assumptions of greatness by stooping down low in the person of Jesus and saving those who have nothing to show for themselves. Saving those who have nothing to their credit, who know that they are helpless and unworthy. Jesus calls them infants like little children those are the ones who are seeing Him for who He is, who are having His grace revealed to Him. And so what, what Jesus says, what Paul says here, this is a, all at once a very hard word for some of us, and a very liberating word for others. See, to those who are proud and self-sufficient, for people who don't really see themselves as Helpless and needy sinners. It's called self-righteousness. Other people are bad, but not me. Jesus says, Paul says, the gospel of grace is concealed to them. It's hidden from their eyes. Perhaps it's foolish to our ears. It's insulting to our pride. I don't need what Jesus came to offer. But to those who are humble... To those who are needy and weak and sin-sick, the Gospel is the brightest and warmest light in all creation. It is The Gospel is, in Paul's words, the fragrance of life to those who receive Christ, to those who know they need Him. God is well pleased to reveal His grace and pour it out to the empty-handed. Is that a good, welcome word for you? Or is that hard to stomach? Pride will stand in the way. Jesus says, those who have rejected me have done it because they were so full of their own religiosity that they had no need for the grace of God. But Jesus is going to take us a step deeper here in this text Because we shouldn't think that, well, God only saves a certain class of people. God only saves the poor or the marginalized. That's not the case. I want you to look again at verse 27 as to what Jesus says next. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills, To reveal Him. Jesus, the Son of God, possesses all authority. All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. That means all authority, all power, glory, truth, knowledge. It's all Jesus. And we notice here as Jesus makes this claim of authority, of knowledge, that He's talking about a certain kind of knowledge. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Now, what does that mean? Well, th- let's, let's go back to Theology 101 here for just a second. This is something we all need to know and grasp. God the Father and God the Son share the very same substance and nature. Um, Jesus is not an invention or a creation of the Father. He is one with the Father. And because Jesus is God, He alone knows the Father entirely and exhaustively, intimately, and perfectly. There's a knowledge that exists within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, that no one else knows intuitively. Only God, in His perfection, shares this knowledge, this relationship, this intimacy. Now, that's a a really wonderful truth. That's something we ought to grasp and understand Uh, just real quickly, God didn't create the world because He needed company. No, the Father, Son, and the Spirit are intimately connected. They know each other. There's perfect relationship and there always has been. He didn't create us out of need. And so if we understand that about the Son and the Father here, there's a knowledge that they share that's, that's intimate and unique. But Jesus doesn't cut us off at that point. We'd say, wow, that's amazing. But no, He shares that with a purpose. This knowledge shared between Son and Father. Look at this at verse 27 again. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And that is so key. Because Jesus is getting us right here down to the very essence, the very grounding of our salvation. How is it that a person comes to know God? only through the Son, who is pleased to reveal Him to us. And we may not realize this just at first glance, but right here, what Jesus is doing in Matthew 11, He's redefining terms for us entirely. He's giving us an entirely different formula as to what it means to know God and to come to the Lord. Jesus is confronting our approach our natural inborn approach to spirituality right here in this text. I mentioned this earlier, my mistaken formula that ended up so badly failing that algebra test. The information was right, it was all there in front of me, but the formula was twisted. And y'all, I want to tell us that there are, and I think this is basically true, there are two religious formulas that are entirely naturally human beings. Most of us fall into these two categories, one or the other as to how we approach God and, and the things of God. And yet these two formulas are ultimately twisted and neither of them bring us to salvation. And Jesus confronts, I think, both of them here if we're willing to dig here. okay. So I want to I take both of these in turn and show us, I hope, where they fail. Two formulas as to how we might approach God that both fall short. The first I'm going to call intuition and the second, regulation. Intuition and regulation intuition is the idea that i can come to god on my own without any real need for structure for a bible for doctrines for a church for a pastor i don't need anybody else i can come to god myself you might call it untethered spirituality where I can, I can borrow from other religions and philosophies, but ultimately I am my own authority here. I can relate to the divine however I want. I can create my own sense of meaning and purpose and morality. You know, when people say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. This is typically what they mean here. I acknowledge a higher power, a higher purpose, but I'm free to explore it on my own and in my own way. I'll come to it, on my own terms. And I hope you can see the appeal to that kind of approach. This is why there's an entire section of books in the bookstore that belong to this approach. Because we can seemingly have all the benefits of spiritual life without the trappings of religion. Without all the rules and, and judgment and hypocrisy and scandal. We can have it all. Now, opposite of intuition is a formula I call regulation. And regulation really is the opposite approach. It says, I come to God by being very religious and holding tightly to doctrines and commands and my religious duties and activities. I have a very high commitment to morality, and I expect other people to live the same way. I'm a good person, and I work hard at it. Regulation. Now, which one of you, which, which one of those two approaches maybe do you fall more into? I realize I, I paint with a very broad brush here, but the idea of, of either intuition or regulation, most of us, you know, we, we fall into one or the other, and we're, we're very proud of wherever we fall. Typically, if you're, if you're into the intuition thing, you know, I'm very free, I'm very easy, I'm very non-judgmental. Everybody can come on in on their own terms. But if I'm, if I'm into regulation, then I'm, I'm probably much more strict and determined and probably more narrow-minded. Nobody's allowed in, especially not those people, right? It might make for a good sitcom. Make them roommates. Intuition and regulation. I'm painting with a broad brush, I realize, but mo- more than likely, you, you bend toward one or the other. Maybe not all the way, but you have a bent. I know I bend toward regulation. I love rules. I love being told what to do and telling other people what to do. Might be why I became a pastor. I don't know. I've been that way, y'all. I'm not a free spirit. I like I go by the letter. I like boxes. Right? Some of y'all been the other way. But what I'm trying to communicate to us, I hope is that they're both wrong. They're both backward. They're upside down. Neither of them will result in salvation. And here's why. On the regulation side, maybe this is you. It makes perfect sense to us that God would receive us. We would come to God by being moral and diligent to keep His commands. That's the formula. But not according to Jesus. Jesus says we come to the Father only through the revealing and receiving of His Son. Not by our own religious duties and devices. Not by our own achievements. Our trust must be in Him and not in ourselves. This is the whole context of Matthew 11. All of these proclamations of judgment, Jesus is denouncing the people because they're so full of their own religious identity that they've completely shut themselves off to Him. They're repelled by Christ. They're blinded to His saving grace and purpose because they're so filled up with their own sense of who they are in their religious commitments. Regulation doesn't work. But also on the intuition side, Jesus makes it clear There is no such thing as untethered spirituality. God the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, this is Jesus' prayer, has revealed these things to the world. That is, Jesus' teaching, His divine claims, His ministry, His miracles, these are real and tangible things. And we are really accountable for how we respond to Him. No one has the right to say, I am my own spiritual authority. We have been created by God and in His image and we are designed to know and worship Him. There is one God who has revealed Himself in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. That means that we come to Him by way of revelation, not intuition. Now I want to circle back and try to summarize a little bit of this for us before we move forward on this. To be a Christian means we come to Jesus not by our own intuitions and not by our religious activities. Not by our own wisdom or by our works. But we come to Him only by His divine unfolding, His revelation. And in that sense, Jesus says, we come as infants. Think about the the picture being drawn for us there by our Lord. Infants are humble and needy and helpless. We are empty-handed. It's the only way to come to God. It's the acknowledgement that unless Jesus comes to seek me and save me, then I am otherwise lost. I have nothing to commend myself to Him. I'm not wise in my own eyes. I can only come empty-handed completely dependent on His grace. And therefore, that's the only formula that gets us to God. Depending on His revelation, His grace to save us, we cannot make our way on our own. But y'all, there's one more essential element here in this wonderful Scripture. We've seen up to this point, we've seen Jesus praying to the Father. Very lofty, very heavenly language. It's wonderful to behold, but it may not seem very concrete, very earthy here. And so at the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to bring this down to eye level in a way that is, I think, stunning. Not only is there a revelation of Jesus required for us to be saved, but an invitation from Jesus. And y'all, I hope you know this, God doesn't save anybody with a lightning bolt from heaven. It's much more personal than that. God calls us to Himself. And that's what Jesus does here. It's not just It's not a a revelation somewhere that uh, we only perceive in a a spiritual realm beyond us. No, it's an invitation face-to-face. Look at what He says in verse 28. After this moment of prayer, Jesus speaks now and says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you, and learn from Me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, and My burden is light. Who is Jesus inviting in here? All who are weary and heavy burdened. And most likely, He's referring to the weariness and the burden of living under the law. See, Jesus' Jewish kinsmen, they would have all known what it was to bear up under the heavy yoke, the weight and burden of the law. This is a weight that no one could bear because the law required a righteousness no one can achieve. And to make matters worse, the religious leaders of the day, these men that Jesus continues to denounce, they were adding all their own conditions and embellishments to the law making it even heavier and more exacting. It was crushing to the people. And yet it's into this heaviness, into this weariness that Jesus speaks and He offers an invitation that will stop us in our tracks. He says, come to Me, all of you who are broken down, who are crushed in spirit, and I will give you rest. He says, take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, and My burden is light. The promise of Jesus is something very difficult for us to get our hands around. It's hard for us to even imagine. Some of us, we can't even even imagine life this way. Jesus offers us soul rest. A deep down, abiding rest and peace that comes from a divine source. Jesus is going to offer us that rest, how? By taking away the crushing burden of the law, the crushing burden of our sin, and putting His yoke upon us instead. Now, the the, the smart readers among us may say, now wait a minute, hold on, He's going to take one yoke off, but He's putting another yoke on, what kind of deal is that? We're just trading one for the other, right? How does that make it any easier? But see, that's, that's actually a very wise question because it gets to the heart of our whole faith. Y'all, when Jesus invites us to be His disciples, we're not simply trading one form of religion in for another. This is not Jesus saying, hey, take off that old heavy law and try on this new law. It's less demanding It's it's much easier for you to manage. And now with a lighter load, now you can do it. Now you can make your way to the finish line. A lot of us would accept that. It's easier than the alternative. But that's not what Jesus comes to give. No, what Jesus is doing here, He's giving us an entirely new category of existence, a new formula for life. Jesus is not calling us to a law or to a mere religion or to some spiritual experience. Jesus calls us to... Himself. Come to Me, He says, and in Me you will find true rest for your souls. Y'all, this rest means a lot of things. But it means at the very least, the forgiveness of your sins. Not a new lease on life and a better chance of success, no. But the forgiveness of sin and failure And all our rebellion, we are now reconciled with God. That's the kind of rest Jesus has in mind here. It's the kind of rest that comes from having a Lord over us who is not harsh, who is not bent against us, but He's gentle with us. It's a rest that comes because Jesus is not pressing us down under His thumb, but He's come to humbly serve us and lay down His life for us. See, this is why the call of Christ is utterly unique. He's not like any other teacher there ever was. We see all at once here, y'all. This is, I remember I said it a minute ago. It's a very hard word and a very liberating word, both at the same time. Notice what Jesus is doing as he draws these lines for us. There's an unmistakable narrowness being communicated in this call. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That's narrow. You can't just find your way there by intuition. And yet, at the same time, there's a wideness in His mercy. Drives religious people crazy. Because all the wrong kinds of people end up finding their way in. There's a wideness in His mercy. In this invitation, come to Me. All who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. If we understand, even just a little bit, what Jesus is communicating here, then we will refuse mere spirituality. The call of Christ is narrow in that sense and very clear. He says, follow Me. Come to Me. Learn from Me. Abide in Me. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The terms are His. They are not ours. Y'all, spirituality is not free-ranging autonomy. Spiritual life is found only in Him. We belong to Him. But this is why we also have to refuse mere religion. Y'all, human religion, if you've ever practiced mere religion seeking to earn your way into God's good favor, then you know this is true. Mere religion refuses grace, rejects grace, because the need for grace implies that I am helpless, I am a failure. And you know what happens to failures. They get left out. Failures receive only judgment. And because we intuitively believe that, we strive against it. We have to make ourselves worthy and acceptable. Mere religion will not make room for grace because if you are crushed under the weight of sin, you've got to atone for that yourself. You've got to make your own way out. But in breaks the voice of Jesus to those who are floating in a sea of spirituality, to those who are crushed under the weight of our desire to to earn God's favor, Jesus speaks to us all. And he says, come to me. Come to me and rest. Come to me that you might know the Father. It's the weary, the needy, the infants, the sinners, who he came to rescue. And when we are willing to acknowledge that reality, to see it in ourselves, to see ourselves as empty-handed infants, then we are ripe for the harvest to see God as He is revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. Y'all, this is why when we talk about discipleship, this is a conversation that never begins with, here's what you need to do. There's plenty to do. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks, trust me. There's plenty to do. But the conversation never begins with that. With what you need to do in order to follow Jesus. The emphasis is always on who He is and what He has done. That's the starting point. There is no coming to God otherwise. Plenty for us to do on the back end, absolutely. But our foundation is not there. Our foundation is in Him. Our hope is in Him. Our trust is in Him. Him and Him alone. That's why He says, come to Me. It's His divine life. It's His atoning death. It's His glorious resurrection. That's why there is no life apart from Him. Come to Me, Jesus says. And when we do, we don't just receive entrance into the Christian life. We receive it all. All that His grace delights to give us when we come to Him and rest. Y'all, I want to invite us this morning, however God might lead us to respond. It may just be that we resolve this morning to do away with spiritual self-autonomy. There is no untethered spirituality. Let's forsake that today and come to Him. There also is no earning or achieving or doing enough good or rising above the sinful world. No. We have to come to Him for all that He is. And He has given Himself to us and for us. Jesus has held nothing back. And so we may respond freely. We may receive Him today according to His grace given us. And so if you would like to pray, if you'd like someone to pray with you about what it means to be a Christian, about something in your life that you're walking through, and we can just walk with you pastorally, we delight to do that. Aaron and Evan will be here in just a moment as I pray and as we sing. They'll be by the doors. If you want to step out, just take them by the hand and let them speak with you and pray with you. But however the Lord leads us to respond, it's very simple from the mouth of Jesus today. Come to Him. Look to Him, away from ourselves, to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls, the one who laid down His life out of love for us, that He might bring us to God. There is no better news in all the world. And so let's respond as He calls us to Himself this morning. Father, I'm I'm asking certainly for myself. I'm asking for all of us this morning where we sit. That Lord, if if this if these words of Jesus are hard for us today, then perhaps that's the very best thing that could happen. Maybe Lord, you would you would ins- you would insult our pride by showing us that there is only one way to You, and it's not through me. It's through Christ. It's not my achievement, but His. Maybe, Lord, You would tether us and bring us down to earth and show us, Lord, that You have furnished spiritual life to us through a person, a real man who walked among us, Your Son, Jesus Christ. And He sets the agenda. Life is found in Him. And Lord, as You might, I pray, crush our pride this morning. My pride. That Lord, You'd make us infants in Jesus' language. Show us, Lord, that we really are helpless. We really are truly needy. We really have nothing to show for ourselves, Lord. We we need grace. And Lord, we, we bring nothing to the table. We need grace in the full. Lord, let that be the most liberating, most wonderful, most bright, shining, and glorious message we've ever heard. That, Lord, Your grace abounds to sinners. Father, thank You this morning that You did not leave us to spirituality. You have not left us to mere religion as if we are just here to figure things out the best we can. You have revealed Your grace through Your Son so that both now and forever we might know you and enjoy life in his name. And so we say thank you. And may we respond with our whole hearts as we trust Jesus Christ in faith. And it's in his great name we ask these things. Amen.